people are generally lazy. And also we are submerged by music. So doing the effort of follow the artist page, maybe go to Instagram and see and check out the artist. Those are very important steps. So showing an involvement, I would say it's fundamental because you want to know more about the artist or the band. Hi everyone. Welcome to How Music Charts, where we pull back the curtain on today's music business, exploring music industry trends, music data, and the creativity that helps your favorite artists hit the charts. I'm your co-host Jason. You'll hear from our other co-host Rutger soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help the music industry leverage the power of data analytics. On this episode, we chat with Tommaso Rocchi, a 2020 Master of Arts graduate of the Global Entertainment and Music Business Program at Berklee College of Music in Valencia, Spain. As a former college radio music director at the University of Padua in Northern Italy, Rocchi then moved on to Berkeley to focus on copyright law, new business models, and data analytics. In September of last year, Rocchi penned a Chartmetric article entitled How Data is Redefining the Role of A&R in the Music Industry Today, based off of his research at Berkeley. It focuses on where the field of A&R has gone in the digital era from its analog roots, and how data plays a significant role, which never replaced the human side of how professionals operate. Roki is currently a product manager for data and analytics at Netherlands-based classical music label, Pentatone. But without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Tommaso Roki. Hey, Tommaso. So where are you joining us from today, by the way? I'm still in Italy. You know, uh, it was uh, kind of uh, an interesting year, this one. So I'm still like finding out where I will be in the world uh, in the future, mostly like uh, related to jobs. But, you know, this whole opportunity shows us that it's possible to work uh, basically from uh, from every place. So at the moment, I'm still enjoying some uh, some good quality food. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. So you started out at an almost 800-year-old university. In Northern Italy. Yeah, uh, second, uh, second oldest university in the world. That's so cool. So you were initially studying fine arts, music, and cinema, and then you moved on to your first graduate degree, also at the same university in musicology. Tell us about why you decided to focus on music for your education. Uh, you know, it was a kind of... Um, my, my grandfather was uh, uh, the artistic director for the Arena di Verona, so uh, he uh, worked with uh, opera, with uh, a lot of uh, big tenors and uh, yeah, in the whole classical music field. Uh, so I started listening to, to opera since I was like, uh, I think like five or, uh, or six years old. And then I moved on uh, and I really discovered, uh, uh, you know, the charts and then like mm, digging more into like more obscure and artists and genres. And it was really a thing that um, really conditioned my life, uh, my my choices in terms of the studies and uh, and also like my profession. So I really wanted like to to do something that uh, I was uh, very involved into, and uh, that I could also like feel proud about it. Super cool. So after you finished your time at the University of Padua, it looks like you decided to stay on board as the music director of the college radio station there, which you already started while you were a student. Could you tell yeah, us yeah. about that time um, and how that kind of, you know, initial years as a music director, kind of how that shaped the beginnings of your career? 
Uh, yeah, like I had the opportunity of joining the college radio uh, when I was uh, still a student. Uh, it was really like my first approach to a part of the music business because I ended up like learning uh, really the ropes and all like the uh, some of the technical aspects, like uh, for example, how to, do you um, actually program the um, kind of the it's called the clock, uh, but it's basically like a playlist uh, related to, to the radio. So how the whole uh, audio stream works uh, into the different times of the days, uh, day and based on, uh, yeah. It, it, so it really changes uh, a lot based on uh, the mood that you want to go into, if you want, what type of radio you want to be. So I had the opportunity to learn uh, a lot of stuff uh, and experiment a lot because uh, it was a really a uh, freeing environment where I had like a lot of uh, liberty to experiment and do a lot of stuff. And I ended up like uh, working with, uh, yeah, some uh, audio production, uh, like uh, building some of the jingles uh, and the podcasts of the radio, uh, more the artistic side of it. So like the actual uh, radio programming and, and the airplay, the part of reporting and so on and so forth. So it was like... Uh, uh, fundamental to have like a first look at the at the industry mm -hmm. and so you're there for a few <laughs> years and for someone already so well educated you, you decided to still go back to school again this time with Berkeley in 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 Spain so what made you decide to go back uh, it was uh, it all started with a, a failed job interview <laughs> because uh, uh, I had like this interview for a uh, Spotify Italy. Mm. I was like super pumped about it uh, because uh, it was like uh, it was like for the music programming, uh, so I was really into it. It was like a perfect uh, occasion. But then you know I received the, the the usual email. Thank you for your time, but we decided to move forward with other candidates. Mm -hmm. uh, that thing really hit me, but it was like uh, uh, unnecessary kick in the butt in order like to. Uh, do something about it because uh, I really wanted like to move on with my career in music, um, getting more insights uh, and really like being a professional. So it, in a in a certain sense, it was a, a waking call that uh, that uh, event. So yeah, and I decided like to to think oh, what's the best thing that I can do. Uh, about it to really become a professional in the music industry and the answer was uh, Berkeley. Yeah, I applied for it. Oh, uh, I applied for it. Hopefully uh, they um, they accepted me and then it was like uh, uh, the best choices I ever had uh, ever um, committed in my life. That's awesome. Awesome. And so now you're you're with uh, Pentatone, you're your project manager there for data and analytics, kind of making your name for yourself in the music analytics world. Uh, how's it going? Can, can we ask, you know, how things are and kind of what, you know, projects you might be working on? It was very interesting because uh, uh, um, classical music, uh, uh, it's honestly uh, some years behind uh, the, the overall music industry because uh, the way of the consumption. Uh, for example, uh, the majority of our sales comes from physical products because the classical listener still wants... Uh, the CD quality, and uh, it's really skeptical about streaming, but in general, it wants the physical product, something that 
can hold in in the hand and most importantly it doesn't want vinyl <laughs> because it has those uh, small cracks the imperfection so they want like the crystal clear sound so as a label we also specialize in uh, uh, surround CDs, so very high quality. So people that have like these massive high uh, hi-fi uh, st- uh, stereo devices that they can really enjoy the music. Uh, uh, in, yeah, l- l- it's like a more of a meditation rather than uh, listening mm-hmm. to music just for, for the sake of it. Yeah. So let's get into a little bit of the context surrounding the article that you wrote for the Chartmetric blog. And your master's thesis, actually. What made you so interested in A&R and um, the way that data analytics relates to A&R? You know, I was definitely fascinated by the role of the A&R because, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, charm related to the the profession because... uh, uh, you know the idea of being the one that's able like to spot uh, the unexpressed talent across a room and try to elevate that uh, upcoming artist into a superstar it's uh, you know it's extremely fascinating for for everyone so um i started like to as a way to explore this uh, this particular uh, professional figure and and yeah i was Curious also to know what was changing into the approach uh, of uh, of ANRs, especially for the part that, uh, to a certain degree, was extremely frustrating and boring. That scouting, because uh, you know, at the moment I think we have like uh, fifty thousand tracks uploaded uh, on Spotify every day, something like this. So scouting for uh, emerging artists, uh, it's uh, particularly uh, difficult uh, and uh, thinking of doing like um, some of the traditional scouting process like uh, uh, going to clubs, uh, uh, reading into like um, webzines, uh, some, you know, try to understand kind of the cultural context and like do a lot of manual research and work. Uh, It's... uh, uh, very ineffective in the today the and age because of the overwhelming volume of music that we have at the moment. So, can you explain a little bit of the history of ANR? Like, what exactly does it mean? Where did it come from? What has the role involved historically? So, we sort of understand how it's changed through all this data that's being generated every day. Sure. Um, well, ANR stands for Artists and Repertoires, so it's the um, primarily representative of the label uh, in respect of the artist. So it's the main person uh, which the artist uh, uh, refers to when uh, he has to discuss anything related to its uh, his or uh, she, uh, she, her contracts uh, with the with the label. Uh, so anything from uh, uh, the legal aspects of it, so discussing uh, the royalty splits, uh, how do you want uh, um, the, the rights uh, that you assign, what type of license deal that you want to deal to do, or uh, but also like the, all the uh, artistic aspect to it. So the production, uh, the also 
partially related to the marketing, so the overall branding of the artist. So it's really an, Im an important figure that connects uh, the, the artist with the record label. Uh, the role, I think, uh, is changed uh, a lot. Uh, I had, uh, for, for my thesis, I had the opportunity to talk with some uh, incredible people like uh, uh, Rob Dickens, that was chairman of uh, Warner Music UK, uh, in arising that she's uh, currently uh, the ANR director for Parlophone. Um, yeah, a lot, I talked with really a lot of people that they, they really told me how everything changed compared to, to when they started. So do, with that in mind, do artists still get discovered in small underground clubs like they used to? Or does discovery, is it pretty much exclusive to the internet? Uh, it's extremely complicated because I would say that uh, from the talks that I uh, had with these ANRs, uh, it's... Uh, Ex uh, the first thing that comes uh, into place when they are this when they having an ANR meeting, so where uh, someone presents uh, a new artist and discuss the potential for signing or uh, or whatever, the first thing that comes into place is not the music. They don't play the music. They go through the Instagram page. They want to see some stats. They want to see if uh, the artist is reacting in uh, any way. Um, and I would say that uh, this uh, it's uh, kind of a, a fault uh, in a certain way of, uh, of uh, the democratization of the access to music. Because at the moment, as an independent artist, you had the opportunity of uh, producing your music because it's becoming uh, way cheaper and, afford and affordable compared to like the 90s or the first 2000, because now you can buy... Um, audio interface, uh, MIDI keyboard, and you can do your own uh, solo project in, uh, in your bedroom. Uh, Billy Eilish produced uh, uh, a number one record in, uh, in her childhood bedroom with, uh, with her brother. So it, it shows that's possible to do it. Uh, the distribution is extremely easy for, uh, for everyone. There's a lot of services, even cheap, uh, that uh, you're able like, to spread your music across the different DSPs. Uh, uh, um, there's a lot of um, tools that are, are uh, allow you to promote your music. There are even like uh, uh, artificial intelligence that come a, a long way because now you can even like create your own video clip. Uh, yeah, so you actually have all the tools available to start your music career. But at the same time, this uh, um, embarrassment of riches uh, in a way raised the bar for labels because they already want, since uh, you already have all the tools available, they're not interested in to develop an artist from scratch. They already want to see someone that's, uh, that are, has already a good understanding of, uh, of uh, the musical environment and also has a, already a clear vision and uh, also some uh, so relevant audience data because uh, at the end that's what the labels want uh, want to see right so i know there's this sort of dichotomy that's presented between especially when it comes to anr between gut and data 
um, especially with regard to like recognizing an artist. I would argue that gut or like the instinct of traditional ANRs is just based on other forms of data and that ANR has always kind of been data driven in that way. It's just, you know, obviously a little less numbers driven. Would you agree or do you think there really is a tension or a contrast between the traditional ANR role and the increasingly analytical ANR role? You know, the gut feeling was like a staple of the entertainment industry in general. I would say you can apply it also like to to movies, uh, to certain type also to, to games. Uh, I would say a, a book that really helped me into my thesis, uh, it's called Entertainment Science, uh, Data Analytics and Practical Theory for Movies, Games, Book and Music. It's, uh, uh, this book, Entertainment Science, was fundamental for my research because it really showed there's uh, a lot of theory behind this kind of uh, supposed gut feeling used by uh, the more ex experienced uh, executives of, uh, of uh, the record labels, but also like the movie industry, uh, books, games, and more. Um, because in reality, there's also like a lot of psychology also involved. Uh, I think that's uh, really important in general for the entertainment industry. Uh, it's kind of the process of, uh, uh, but first of all, the definition, because uh, uh, the entertainment product has a, a precise purpose that's to entertain your, you, uh, you as a user. Uh, when you buy, when you have to buy a vacuum cleaner, you definitely don't don't feel a lot of emotion buying a, a vacuum cleaner. You're more like interested. Speak for yourself. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> I know a lot of people that uh, can be like very emotional about uh, buying a vacuum cleaner, but generally you look at the technical specs, like the reviews. So you have an approach that's more uh, um, not objective, uh, more uh, practical. I would say. Uh, when you buy a games, you buy a games because you want to play, you want to enjoy it. Uh, you want to, uh, to feel some emotion. It's the same as music. Music has to transmit you anything because uh, uh, there's nothing worse than dull music, something that doesn't even like make you feel uh, anything. So we're not talking about only positive emotion. There's, you know, the whole genre of uh, metal and punk are very focused on negative uh, feelings in a way but yeah for the entertainment in uh, product it's actually important that this emotion involved the second aspects it's really related to boredom and the satiation effect the fact that uh, um, the exposure to the same product over an extended period of time uh, gets you bored so uh, you can love a song, whatever you want, but if you start listening to it uh, uh, every day for months and months and months, you end up like uh, be tired of it. It's uh, the same as radio. When a song is burned out uh, in radio, it means that it ex uh, exhausted its whole uh, cycle. Uh, so people are tired of listening to it. Uh, so those principles are uh, extremely important in the way to approach uh, this, uh, this research. Um, and the fact that uh, it's still uh, 
kind of difficult to measure it with data because at the moment uh, uh, the majority of the data analytics, analytics services that are available and also like uh, the approach in general that the labels have to uh, data analytics is looking at audience data. So you're looking if this song is reacting in a certain country, um, is reacting uh, maybe in a specific uh, um, sector of the population. Uh, so yeah, you're measuring how uh, you're measuring the streams. Obviously, you're measuring the performance across the different platforms. Uh, so yeah, you're looking at the reaction of the audience to it. Um, the thing that I wanted to talk in my thesis is that this approach can seem uh, practical because in fact, uh, uh, the, there's the assumption that uh, if people like it and listen to it, uh, it's good. So you end up like uh, uh, not following the masses, but kind of like uh, it's uh, um, the song or the artist is validated by the audience in this way. But still, we're, uh, we're in an era of uh, memes. We're in an era of, uh, you know, I wouldn't say fake artists, but kind of uh, something. Uh, I mean, even here in Italy, we had a lot of examples of something that become viral because uh, it was bad and people uh, laugh about it. So yeah, you can see the a thing reacting extremely well in a chart, uh, but maybe it's just because it's a uh, it's a meme and people enjoy it. Uh, they they like it, but that's all. There's. Uh, little to no, to no artists behind. Um, so yeah, I started like to look into other ways, uh, what other things that we can consider uh, besides uh, audience uh, analytics in this way. And one of the, one of my favorite parts of your article, and for those who haven't seen it, it's on, it's on his article, it's figure two, this concept map that you drew. So for those who love flowcharts, it's got a lot of beautiful colors and everything flows very beautifully. Um, but if I can describe it for someone who's just listening, in the center is the circle in it, and, and Tommaso um, labels it cultural environment. And then there's this triangle that is surrounding that environment, and at the top is audience, um, at the bottom left is song, and at the bottom right is artist. And this it forms this triangle around the environment, and they all kind of feed into each other. And you know, off the song part, there's parts of the song that can be analyzed, you know, with computers. Um, but there are parts that also cannot, you know, like, you know, how well is an artist expressing themselves? Um, like you just mentioned with the audience, a lot of that can be um, kind of like processed and analyzed by, by computers. And uh, when it comes to the artists, some, some parts um, can like, you know, maybe their image, there's like visual recognition that can be kind of ran on a lot of you know, like press photos or, you know, photos that they kind of put out on their Instagram or whatever. But there's also parts like charisma about an artist that is so subjective and those things can't be analyzed. Um, I think you did such a great job of being able to kind of like map out all the different elements that, you know, can and cannot be kind of used, um, well, analyzed with data. Um, and it's so important, I feel like, to know where its place is and where its place is not. Um, yeah, yeah, there's no question there, but I just I just think it's really cool. I don't know if you have any comments on that. 
No, I mean, it, it was fun because uh, um, we had uh, A&R class uh, an entire semester at Berkeley. And uh, it was uh, fundamental because I really, uh, we discussed a lot about uh, this whole uh, cultural environment and how it shapes uh, uh, the consumption, how it shapes uh, everything. So how, and all, all these different uh, aspects that are connected and uh, really makes a great act. So um, talked about uh, the songs that has needs to have uh, a specific hook uh, uh, or maybe has some specific values. Uh, uh, the artist uh, has to possess a peculiar voice it doesn't mean to have uh, a good voice because we have a lot of examples of uh, uh, people that are um, not particularly technically good at singing, but they have like an essence, uh, some timbre to the voice that makes them uh, unique and special. And um, yeah, and it was fascinating to try to connect all the dots and see how everything related to each other and what things can we actually process with machine in order like to assess uh, uh, okay what are the what other data points can we can we map what can be useful to add to our current audience analysis uh, because Talking about the cultural environment, uh, um, I'm very close to punk music and the whole movement, uh, if you think about it, uh, was uh, um, a failure in terms of the economic revenue because, um, you know, we had obviously very famous bands like uh, The Clash, uh, Sex Pistols, uh, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, but uh, in terms of revenue, those bands didn't earned uh, nothing comparable to some of the other pop stars of, uh, of the period. But as a movement, punk uh, was uh, so influential and we still see it now in uh, a lot of fields, uh, in fashions, uh, we saw it in uh, comics, uh, we saw it uh, in movies. Uh, so yeah, um, th that's why I'm kind of skeptical about uh, only uh, trust the audience data because uh, in this way you know you cannot you can end up skipping or uh, signaling as an outlier something that maybe could be revolutionary in a sense um one of my favorite documentaries was uh, is uh, sonic highways by the foo fighters they did like this a massive journey around America and different cities. And they talked about the um, DC punk scene and the fact that all these bands, uh, Fugazi, um, Bad Brains, uh, uh, no one wants to sign them. No, there, there's no, there was no label interested in to sign this, uh, this act because you know, it was very raw punk uh, not really in trends with uh, with what was happening uh, so a lot of these people founded the uh, discord records and they end up like printing their own uh, their own stuff and uh, so even if these bands uh, they weren't like the most successful acts of the period they end up like being uh, they end up uh, influencing a lot of uh, 
bands like uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Gen's uh, uh, Addiction, uh, Foo Fighters, uh, so Beastie Boys. Uh, uh, so they were fundamental into shaping, uh, I would say, the next generation. So yeah, I, I want to see if it's possible to not only trust uh, audience data, but go a little more deeper because uh, I feel that there's the possibility of skipping something that's uh, revolutionary. 100% agree. So uh, to play devil's advocate, for the audience data that at least a lot of the people that you seem to interview seems to focus on, which is the audience side, what, what seems to drive a lot of their decisions? You started to talk about it earlier in terms of, you know, the, the first thing is to go to their Instagram and look at, you know, is it re resonating? Do I have a significant follower base? That kind of stuff. Can you get a little bit more into, you know, today, right or wrong, you know, your opinion, whatever, but what, what seems to be like a lot of the major things that they hit specifically um, when they want to just kind of do an initial check into a new artist that they haven't seen I was before? I would say that the KPIs kind of varies between the label and the and the and the ANRs, but overall they want to see consistency. They want to see that a song is reacting not only on Spotify because maybe it was placed in a particular playlist and gained a lot of attention, uh, but they wanted to read that. They want to see the same reaction also on all other DSPs. Something that I think is super important is that uh, um, kind of measure the willingness of people, of the audience, to move uh, uh, forward the kind of uh, the initial step. So even a simple thing like uh, listening to a song, I say, oh, I like, uh, I like this artist. Let's add this one to one of my playlists. Let's check uh, the artist profile and follow. Those steps seems uh, ridiculous, but uh, you have to think that uh, uh, people are generally lazy. <laughs> and uh, now, I mean, we're, and also we are submerged by music. Mm -hmm. So doing the effort of uh, going to the artist page, and follow the artist page, maybe go to Instagram and see and check out the artist. Those are very important steps mm -hmm. because it shows that there's an interest of the audience to know more about the artist that goes behind just, okay, th this song is cool. I'll think I'll listen to it. Maybe I'll put it in my playlist and that's all. And I'm not in, like, it's just something like uh, a commodity. Mm -hmm. So showing an involvement uh, I would say it's fundamental because you want to know more about uh, the artist or the band. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we've seen too um, Wikipedia views, even like Google Trends. A lot of time is like a really interesting um, signifier of that kind of like that next level of deep interest, where they're not even like trying to consume them on a social media or streaming platform. They're actually curious about their life. You know, where are they from? What year were they born? You know, what school did they go to? That kind of stuff. Um, I, I feel like that's that's a really interesting kind of like alternative signal that maybe some people don't think of. Are there any misconceptions about the role of data in the artist discovery process? Um, when you talk about labels, you know, actually signing artists purely based on certain metrics or um, certain music data analytics, um, 
Soda Tone is, you know, one, one example at a major label, you know, do you find that there is fairly good balance between kind of like the gut and instinct, uh, the gut and first data thing, or are sometimes those decisions made 90, you know, maybe even hundred percent based off the data? It really depends uh, because uh, uh, the ANRs that I talked to, they're really interested into signing an act and not a song. So they want to see uh, a potential for uh, something that's more than a single, something that's more than IP, that's maybe extremely successful at the moment. They want to see that you're able like, to have a successful career in the years to come. So, it, I mean, it also depends by the label because there's a, it's also perfectly fine, you know, to see that's a song that's performing extremely well. I signed that artist for, uh, for that record uh, and, and that's all. But the ANRs that I talked to, they're really interested to get uh, the best uh, in line. They really want to be uh, getting the trailblazers. They want to sign something that someone that's able like to uh, even redefine and be the best in line. The, they all talked about uh, uh, signing the original, signing the someone uh, unforgettable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Dare we, dare we ask the question, what recommendations would you give to artists who are looking to get signed? Um, if that's a route they want to go down, because obviously so many artists um, go not the label route nowadays. And should they be paying attention to their data in hopes of attracting that kind of attention? Everyone should pay attention to data. Yeah. Because, you know, even my uh, electric to- toothbrush, uh, it's kind of uh, tracking all my data. <laughs> across uh, across uh, all my all my brushing sessions so we're surrounded by it mm-hmm. in everything we do in uh, when we browse through you know, our youtube uh, when we go to netflix uh, uh, we're submerged by data where there's infinite data points at the moment so uh, it's really a a miss if you mm, skip uh, on a lot of insights that you can get as an artist. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of tools available. You don't need like to be uh, super experienced in coding or, produ- or programming. There's, uh, you can already get uh, um, access to some of your performance, even like for your um, Sp- uh, Spotify for Artists page. Uh, uh, or even other other services. So um, I will say my advice for uh, for emerging artists is uh, uh, probably first of all, as you said, the, the labels uh, are not. I would say I wouldn't say that they are becoming less relevant. They're changing in the sense that at the moment you see also that uh, even for extremely big artists, you see licensing deals while first uh, uh, they wanted the masters. So the artists uh, became uh, uh, more powerful in the bargaining process and they're able like, to also establish uh, um, some of the rules. So I would say that in the last period, uh, uh, there was a really a, a redefining of the relationships between the labels and the artists. You have all the tools to do it yourself, but if you're interested in to get signed by a label, uh, 
you need to show them some activity. And uh, I would say, first of all, uh, you know, they want to see the audience data. So having like um, a consistent uh, number of followers on your, uh, on your pages, it's either like uh, TikTok or Instagram. So show that people are interested into you and also like are involved in you as, a, as an artist. So yeah, you, you really need at the end that core uh, fan base that people that will go across the fire and the flames uh, for you. This is like a, a fundamental thing that an artist at every level, every level of, the, of their career. Mm. Uh, secondly, as an emerging artist, I would say uh, really think about uh, uh, yourself and your career path. Because uh, if you end up in a conversation with the label, uh, they want to talk with someone that has a, a clear idea in mind of where uh, does he or she want to be in the future. Uh, so it's not like, uh, yeah, I'm playing music because uh, it's fun. Uh, it's fun for me. It's, uh, it's an hobby. They want someone that's dedicated and also has a, a very clear image of, uh, of themselves in terms of like, uh, yeah, my whole aesthetic, how you want to build my, my album, my narrative, my, all my products connected to it. And most importantly, yeah, they want someone that's very, uh, resolute and, uh, has a clear, uh, clear in their mind. Mm -hmm. Can, can I ask, so I feel like, you know, on a certain degree, you know, even very young people are already data oriented in, in the sense that they understand that, oh, this video has a lot of YouTube views or, oh, look at this person's profile. They have a lot of followers. And I feel like that's like almost like step one, you know, in their, their data analytics literacy, right? Um, which comes quite naturally to a lot of young people. So could you recommend like a very easy to understand, like what's like the next step someone who's in that frame of mind could take to better take advantage of their data, you know, if they're, they're an independent artist kind of coming up. I would say um, gaining an understanding uh, probably of your uh, territories. So if, uh, uh, where, where, uh, where are you particularly strong in a, in a territory? Um, th that's interesting, for example, and it can also like uh, allow you to say, okay, I know that uh, I have to plan my shows uh, in uh, that specific city, but also it gives you some insights at the fact that uh, where's your untapped market and where you can go next. And see, okay, uh, I see that, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm a British artist, uh, maybe an EDM British artist. Uh, uh, maybe let's try to go to Netherlands and see how my music uh, is doing. Uh, and also look, uh, um, look at the performance of other, 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 look at the performance of other people like you. Because you can say, uh, okay, maybe I think I'm kind of similar to these artists. Let's see where they are performing best and uh, like try to establish my marketing strategy uh, similar to them and see how if, if I can tap into this, their same audiences. Mm -hmm. 
for geography and, and comparing ones with other artists. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. yeah. Totally you, you, you talked a lot about uh, you know trigger cities, uh, so that's also like uh, an uh, an interesting thing to to approach. Uh, and try to market your music to uh, because even you know there's always like the assumption that uh, you know I have to place my music into the states uh, and the UK into the top music markets uh, because otherwise I'm not gonna able to to succeed. Uh, in reality, we saw that um, there's a lot of countries that are, has a lot of uh, potential. And, uh, and also because uh, we see also kind of a change in kind of the trends uh, uh, related to music production uh, and also language. If you think that uh, uh, K-pop at the moment is an established genre, uh, we have uh, a lot of uh, the instance, instances like uh, Rosalia or uh, Tangana, that really took uh, folkloristic uh, uh, flamenco-based uh, patterns, so something extremely traditional and specific to, uh, to Spain, and now they become extremely big uh, overbroad. So uh, don't limit yourself and uh, don't uh, think that, uh, okay, I need to follow what everything everyone is doing. Because in reality, we saw that uh, Originality is like, it's really a, an advantage because the whole uh, satiation program, um, because of the whole uh, uh, boredom that the user can experience. You know, something, hearing something like uh, Tangana, where you have like these uh, um, flamenco based rhythms into it, uh, that's something extremely old. Uh, but for the user, it's fresh because you don't you don't hear everywhere on uh, on the radio on the or the playlist. So don't be afraid also to experiment uh, and go beyond uh, pop, uh, go beyond trap, uh, go beyond uh, EDM, uh, because the the stream streaming really allowed the people to listen to a lot of stuff that's very different uh, with each other and experiment and listen to and discover new stuff because first you were tied to uh, monetary reason because you had that much money that you can spend on on cds or or downloading uh, albums so you need to make a selection now for the same price you can listen to the weekend or you can also listen to uh, an obscure japanese uh, math rock band uh, that no one knows, knows about. So yeah, you have access to basically everything. And we see that, uh, uh, we saw that um, there's a lot of people interesting in something that's more than the usual charts. Looking toward the future, how do you think NR is going to continue to change? Like, will the traditional NR scout become obsolete? Will ARs become more and more technical, or do you think there's going to be this like balance between technical ANR researchers and more traditional gut-based uh, ANR scouts? I believe that artificial intelligence will be like a massive change into, into that particular department in life in general, but we're talking. Uh, 
year side because I'm talking about uh, um, general artificial intelligence. So something that's uh, uh, also able to understand context because at the moment, uh, uh, despite all machines are still extremely stupid. So once they go outside their line of code, they're, they, cannot, they can't improvise. So humans still have that advantage at the moment. Uh, you know, there will be a time where uh, artificial intelligence will be extremely advanced in order like, to also like to do multiple tasks and stuff that, and do something very similar, if not superior, of what humans do. So I, I would say that, uh, yeah, AI definitely will be a plus into it because also it's able like to do a lot of the boring stuff that uh, humans don't enjoy, particularly that's kind of like the, the whole uh, scraping for, uh, for artists, so on and so forth. I think that uh, in the end, uh, there will be the NR department uh, will be kind of divided between uh, the data research, so data scientists, uh, data analysts that really go and dig into the data and they're able like, also like to process not only the audience data, but also all these other data points that we discussed, like uh, um, the mood, the evolution over time, how certain beats or partner, patterns uh, uh, repeats uh, in, into, into different songs and how the song structure is evolving. So we're able to do some very complex uh, uh, analytical stuff, but still, uh, ANR is the main person between the artist and the label. So you still need an, a human being in order, like, to talk with this person. Because I, I think an error that the music industry uh, committed in a certain time, uh, at a certain time, also like still commits is considering an artist only as a product because uh it's, it's simpler the way in that way so you think about okay what's the way to maximize uh, our revenue based on on this song but at the end the artist is a person in flesh and blood that has uh, its uh, upsides uh, and, and downsides um it's a thing that Camille discussed in too, also like in the mental health article that, uh, that wrote for you. And the fact that uh, there's a lot of pressure in, uh, for artists nowadays to really succeed and compete in a very challenging and cutthroating business. So you end up adding a lot of stress, a lot of uh, uncertainties, uh, uh, and all this stuff uh, end up uh, conditioning uh, your product in the end. So I, I really believe that you can't get rid of the human parts from ANR because you need uh, still a, a person to talk to and express your doubts uh, and help you think, okay, I have uh, the single, but I really can't think about how to, uh, what video should go into it. Okay, let's talk to through it. Uh, or, um, yeah, like, well, look, at the moment, I really don't feel like uh, I should be touring because uh, I had like a terrible period at the time. Um, so, yeah, I think 
you still need the human aspect to to an art to, in order for uh, for the artist to move on or uh, yeah or everything will become extremely impersonal so at the point uh, we'll probably go with the uh, ai music and we'll see what happens. <laughs> so is it safe to say that maybe ANRs will be, or just the role of it, ANR um, generally, will be less known for like the scouting discovery process and more known for the development and support process. I know you mentioned like how maybe like a culture team or a, a mental health team might fit into that as well in your article. Well, uh... The whole uh, scouting process in reality is still uh, kind of overlooked by at least the executive ANR said the the, um, the scouting it's really up to the um, entry level jobs into the ANR department so um, the senior ANRs they they really are into artist relations relations so there is talk about, uh, but first of all, about the signing of the artist, uh, how to discuss all the legal matters, the whole uh, development, uh, how do we want to produce this record, uh, the, the expenses, uh, so on and so forth. So, yeah, I talked also with, uh, with A&Rs that they uh, think that uh, this whole scouting process could be uh, done by machines because uh, it also has the advantage of not putting your personal taste into it uh, because you you can up like being biased and exclude uh, um, a song or an artist because uh, at the moment you don't uh, you don't like it or you don't think it's gonna be successful enough so yeah it's also a way like to remove some of the emotional part from uh, from the process in order like to uh, really filter the the top the top tens from uh, the massive amounts of uh, artists and tracks that we have uh, at the moment do you think just to wrap it all up and tie it all together do you think what a and r teams look for in an artist will change or are there sort of timeless qualities will never go out of fashion, no matter how much data and tech are involved? Uh, you know, the, the whole part about the charisma, I think uh, it's kind of uh, not impossible to detect by a machine because uh, at the end, I, I'm a very scientific mind. So I think that at the end, uh, emotions uh, and all the stuff that we feel as humans are uh, electrochemical react reaction that that happens in in our body so i think there's a way like to decode put into code in a way and put zeros and ones to uh, encode the uh, the formula for uh, happiness or uh, or whatever uh, but still it's charisma is extremely difficult to define and it's really a sensation that you feel being close to a person because the way uh, he or she moves how you approach um, in, in my conversation with uh, Ina Reisinger um, uh, she told me that she met uh, Young Blood when 
everything was really at the beginning of uh, his career. Um, so no one kind of noticed him. Um, and uh, she saw performing uh, live at the Great Escape. And she was blown away by, by his own presence, like the fact that uh, he was able like, to transmit something to the audience by just like uh, staring at, at a person. So it's very difficult like to define this with data. And I think you, you still need to, to be present in the moment and experience it, uh, it yourself. Um, I would say in general, A&Rs, they're interested to sign the best in line. They want to see, get the, the best, the first. Uh, and it's still uh, extremely difficult to do even with all of the data points that, uh, that we have at the moment. Uh, um, purely data-driven signings uh, are extremely rare, even with uh, even inside the major labels company that have access to massive data sets and resources. Awesome. That's all I have. Yeah, thanks for all the uh, enlightening insight into the world of A&R. Th thank you all. It was like super fun to, to join you all and talk about the stuff that I get. I'm a real geek about it. Uh, you know, all the interception between uh, technology, psychology, uh, how to approach uh, all this stuff. It's uh, fascinating for me. Speaking our language. <laughs> <laughs> So is there a way for people to contact you if they want to get in touch? Sure. Uh, generally, you can find me at uh, uh, rocky.tom. It's usually my handle for everything from Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, um, even my link free. So you end up, uh, if you type uh, Rocky Tom, uh, I should be the first result. Cool. And where can people read? Uh, your article and your thesis too, actually? Sure, I made it available on uh, Chartmetrics blog and also like uh, you can find it also on my LinkedIn profile, uh, Thomas Rocky. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you all. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. As part of our effort to equip artists with the power of music analytics, we've just rolled out a new artist tier, which you can sign up for at app.chartmetric.com slash plan slash artist for about the price of a coffee per week. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and podcast notes are at blog.chartmetric.com. You can also subscribe there for additional insights delivered to your inbox right after we publish. Did we mention we have a YouTube channel? That's right, subscribe for Chartmetric tutorials and tips for indie artists. Follow our thoughts on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Chartmetric. That's Chartmetric, no S. That's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.